This is the record God has given to us eternal life. This life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're thankful that we have your word. It is your word that illuminates our lives. It illuminates our thinking. It teaches us how to live. It teaches us how to think about you and how to, how to deal with the issues and the details of our lives. Now, Father, as we come together this morning, we're going to fo- focus on a section of Scripture that is uh, significant and powerful for us, presents a tremendous challenge to us, as its focus is to teach us how disciples are to live, what is to be expected of us as believers who are pursuing spiritual growth, spiritual maturity, those who wish to be uh, imitators of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would help us to uh, work our way through this particular passage for there are many uh, verses that are, seem very difficult for us to understand and may we handle your word accurately and correctly. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. On Sunday nights, some of you I know who do not show up regularly or at all are watching on the live stream as we are going through passages uh, <clears throat> and going through the principles of Bible study methods. We covered the first part of Bible study methods in... Um, uh, the early, earlier part of the, the fall, and last week or the week before, we began to look at the second part of Bible study methods, which is the issue of interpretation. The first part is observation, what does the text say? The second part is interpretation, what does it mean? And as we're learning, the focal, the focal point there is what, does the, uh, what was intended by the author. With Scripture, that includes two authors, the heavenly author and the human author, the third stage in Bible study methods is application. Application is, what does it mean to me? Uh, too often people jump from the first, they spend about five minutes doing observation, and then they jump all the way to the end and start doing application and never really uh, fully understand the passage and what's there, observation, and then they don't take much time in interpretation, and consequently they're trying to do things that have nothing to do with the text. Our passage now for the next several classes is going to be in the Sermon on the Mount. It is arguably one of the most difficult sections of Scripture to interpret. It takes a lot of time in looking at a passage like this in terms of that first stage of observation. And then once we really think we know what's there, then we have to go about the process of trying to answer the question, what does it mean? 
I'll give you a little illustration some of you may be familiar with, and that is television commercials. I don't know if you've noticed this over the last several years, but there are some television commercials that come on that where they're, they're pretty creative in how they're advertising their product because they don't just come right out and tell you what the product is or what they want you to do, and you have to think about it. And sometimes these products are targeted at a much younger audience than some of us, and so we have to think about it a little more. That's all part of that process of observation. Recently, Sprint uh, Cellular has been, uh, has been broadcasting a commercial where you have two uh, elegant, well-trained actors known for their uh, theatrical ability come out on a relatively empty stage. Each is dressed in a tuxedo, and they engage in a dramatic reading. One actor is James Earl Jones, and the other actor is Malcolm McDowell. And what they are reading, if you don't catch it the first, second, or third time, which a lot of times you don't, is they are reading text messages between two individuals. Some of you are nodding in recognition. And they read them with the most incredible dramatic flair. And they read through all the texts and the abbreviations and everything else and all of the slang that's used in text messages. And after you've seen this commercial four, five, or six times, what you're doing is you're observing that. You're listening to it, what in the world is going on here? And you listen to it, and some of that slang just goes right past you. One of the last phrases they use is a phrase, totes my goats, and I had to Google that, find out what it was from the Urban Slang Dictionary. And... Um, I'll let you figure that out on your own. But that's all part of observation. But then you're saying, well, what does that have to do with Sprint and cell phones? It takes a while to put that together. What you're doing is the same thing we do in Bible study. What you are doing is watching something rather than reading it, and the first time you see it, you went, what was that all about? I don't understand what they're, what they're doing. I don't understand what they were saying. I don't understand how that relates to a cell phone. You're starting to ask those important questions. And then the next time you see it, the next time you listen a little more, it becomes a little more familiar to you. And all of a sudden, about maybe sixth, seventh, or eighth times, if then, uh, the light goes off. You know, oh, I understand what's going on here. They're really targeting this to a young audience, and they're just reading the text back and forth and talking about how uh, imp- how good, I- implying how great their system is for sending text messages back and forth and that sort of thing. Same thing happens in Bible study. You hit a passage like the Sermon on the Mount, and you read it, and you wonder, how in the world can I do this? What is Jesus talking about in some of these passages? And as you read certain phrases, what you're doing is you're, you make an assumption, and that is that when certain phrases are used, you're thinking this is talking about salvation. This is talking about how to get to heaven. One of those phrases is the phrase inheriting the kingdom. And if you read through that and study that phrase as it's found throughout Scripture, it is very common for people to uh, to, to interpret that phrase as getting into heaven when you die. There's an illustration of how this is abused and misunderstood. 
in our media today with the Phil Robertson uh, issues related to Duck Dynasty and the, his interview in GQ the other day where he made certain comments about uh, the practice of homosexuality and then he quoted or paraphrased from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, which reads, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And if you've listened to or read anything in the media, uh, you will have run across many who take that to mean that those who commit any of this list of sins, and there are other parallel passages to this in Galatians and in Revelation and a few other places, where they take this to mean that if you commit or practice these sins, you can't go to heaven. And that creates a conflict, especially for any Christian who understands the concept of grace which teaches that the, re, the basis for our salvation is not what we do or don't do, it's what Christ did on the cross. That the only work that matters when it comes to determining our eternal destiny is what Christ did on the cross, that he paid the penalty for our sins and that salvation is a free gift and that all we have to do is accept it. It doesn't matter what sins we commit because one sin is like another sin in terms of disqualifying us from fellowship with God, whether it's a small sin, whatever you think of as a small sin, telling a white lie, speeding, a number of other things. Speeding is breaking the law, by the way. That's a low commandment, but it's still a violation of law. Um, I hate that, but we have to be objective when we're in the pulpit. Um, When we have, when we commit low-level sins, it's just as disqualifying for us in relation to the absolute righteous standard of God as a major sin, whatever you might consider to be a major sin. Some of those listed here, homosexuality, adultery, uh, sexual immorality, but stealing. What if you're just a minor shoplifter and you're still guilty over that pack of gum you shoplifted when you were seven years old? Uh, drunkards, alcoholics, uh, revilers, extortioners. Uh, a reviler is someone who is uh, treating God lightly as a blasphemer against God. Extortioners. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. This seems like, well, if this is true, why go to the prisons and conduct a prison ministry uh, where you're trying to get prisoners saved? Because if they've committed these things, well, they can't get to heaven. So either this phrase, inherit the kingdom, relates to getting into heaven, in which case we have a major theological conflict in the scriptures, or it actually means something beyond just getting into heaven when we die physically. Inheriting the kingdom is a major, major theme in the Sermon on the Mount. There are other phrases that we'll see that are used in a parallel manner, uh, obtaining uh, the kingdom, obtaining eternal life, which has a purchase mentality to it, uh, even the phrase entering the kingdom has is used in, with different senses, so you have to look at the context. But this is crucial for understanding what Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. 
So this morning what I want to do is give us a little bit of an overview, not so much as a, of a summary of the Sermon on the Mount, but help us to understand how we are to interpret or understand what Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. We have to fit this within the context. That's one of the most important rules of interpretation is to understand the context. And last time I focused on Jesus' call of the disciples in Matthew chapter uh, chapter 4, verses 18 through 22, we read of Jesus calling his disciples. He calls Peter and Andrew, and he called James and John. When we compare this passage with John 1, as I pointed out, this is something about a year after he initially met uh, James and John and Peter and Andrew and Nathaniel. Now he comes to them and he is challenging them to a higher level of involvement with his ministry. They are already believers in him as Messiah. They were already Old Testament saints because uh, most of these that are initially mentioned were already disciples of John the Baptist and had responded to his message. So they were what we would call Old Testament type believers, and they're simply transitioning to a recognition that Jesus is now the promised and prophesied Messiah. Matthew uses the last part of chapter 4, as I pointed out, to set up this this teaching discourse in Matthew 5 through 7, known as the Sermon on the Mount. It's important to understand that there are these five discourses or these five instructions or teachings in Matthew, and the narrative portion, the story portion, simply serves to set up these five discourses. And in those five discourses, Jesus is training his disciples so that they can live uh, before God, live out their spiritual life in spiritual maturity and obedience uh, after he ascends to heaven. Remember, Matthew, Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all writing long, long after the church age has begun. So they are writing these gospels not just to explain the work of Christ on the cross, uh, they're doing that too, but their audience is always church-age believers. Now, that's an important thing to remember because uh, sometimes we get a little off course because we think that even though Jesus is teaching uh, an audience that is still under the Mosaic law, the gospel writer is bringing that to the attention of church-age believers. So there's direct application and implication for us as church-age believers. So he's focusing, uh, Matthew focuses our attention on the call of these disciples at the end of Matthew chapter 4, also emphasizing what Jesus is doing during this stage of his ministry is teaching, preaching, and healing. The teaching has to do with giving instruction as to what the Old Testament meant. He's teaching in the synagogues, specifically in relation to the Messiah. Preaching, that is, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven isn't here yet, but it's near. And it's near in his person because he is the king who has come to offer himself to Israel. And as a sign that he is the king, he is healing all kinds of sickness. Now, this is important to understand because the kingdom's not there yet, but he's telling them it's about to come. 
and what is necessary for the kingdom to actually arrive is that the is Israel needs to repent, that is, to turn back to God in obedience, terminology that comes directly out of the Old Testament, comes directly out of the Pentateuch. That sets us up. So what we see is the context of Matthew 4 is the call of these disciples. In Matthew 5 through 7, he is going to specifically teach his disciples. Even though there's a huge crowd there, he's not teaching the multitudes, only indirectly. He is focused on teaching his disciples what it is, what is required of them to excel as disciples. So right away we know he's not going to be talking about how to get into heaven when you die. That's all, that question has already been settled. His focal point is to challenge them with the high call and responsibility of discipleship, which is a concept that is related in the context to entering, inheriting, and obtaining, entering the kingdom, inheriting the kingdom, and obtaining eternal life. So what he means by these phrases isn't what we often think he means. Obtaining eternal life isn't having eternity in heaven. It is realizing here and now the qualitative aspect of eternal life such that it impacts the quality of our life when we are with the Lord in his kingdom and in eternity. To boil that down, what Jesus is basically saying is if you want to be a disciple, you have to learn to live this kind of a life because it's this kind of a life that at the judgment seat of Christ is going to end up having gold, silver, precious stones, which is a metaphor for rewards, and you will be given responsibilities in the coming kingdom to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who fail to pursue the path of discipleship will lose rewards at the judgment seat of Christ, and they will not have ruling, reigning responsibilities in the kingdom when it comes. Jesus Christ is gathering around him in the church age a cadre of excellent believers who have pursued spiritual maturity so that they are prepared to be co-reigners with him in the future millennial kingdom. That's the framework. Now, you've probably been exposed to one or more interpretive frameworks for understanding the understanding the Sermon on the Mount. The first view, which pretty much is uh, rejected by everybody, no matter what your uh, background is, no matter what your theological framework is, liberal, conservative, uh, covenant, dispensational, whatever, and that's the salvation view. Just about everybody has rejected that as a viable interpretation. Jesus is talking to those who are already saved about something other than getting into getting into heaven. Then we have the penitential view. This is a view that was popularized by a German scholar named Gerhard Kittel. He was the editor of a, of a well-known work of a, called the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. He was also a virulent anti-Semitic and a Nazi during the 30s. Uh, the English editors and translators of his work have... Uh, abridged it slightly to remove any anti-Semitisms or any other remarks like that. So that's a, it's, it's a, the English version has been uh, cleansed. 
But the problem with both of these first two views, the salvation view, the penitential view, is that they they fail to take into account that Jesus is talking to his disciples. Jesus says to his audience that they are the salt of the earth. He says in Matthew 5.13, he says they are the light of the world in Matthew 5.24. He tells them to pray to God as our Father in Matthew 6.9, and he refers to God as our Heavenly Father in Matthew 6.26. Obviously, Jesus considers them to already be saved, already be justified. What we understand here is that is that Jesus is teaching believers and he is challenging them to a higher level of commitment to him as believers. Then we have the third view, which is the church view. This is held by, uh, again, theologians across the spectrum from liberal to conservative, from pre-mill, post-mill, ah-mill, dispensational, or covenant. And this is a view that this is designed to instruct church-age believers Strictly speaking, this doesn't work because it is not being addressed to church-age believers. It's being addressed to believers under the Old Covenant, under the Mosaic Law. Uh, Nevertheless, it does have, as we'll see, application for us. Uh, Then you have the fourth view, which is the kingdom view. I guess that many of you may have been exposed to this view. This was very popular among a number of dispensationalists of previous generations, Lewisbury Chafer, Arnold Gabeline, several others, and that is basically saying this is the constitution of the kingdom. And so everything in Matthew 5 through 7 relates to how believers are to live in the millennial kingdom. Therefore, it has no value, no meaning, no application to us today. There are some problems with that view. Uh, one of the problems is that the, the um, Sermon on the Mount it speaks about a time when the disciples that he's addressing will go through persecution, rejection, and hostility uh, during the, in terms of the application of the principles of, of uh, the sermon. Since there's not going to be persecution, rejection, and hostility in the millennial kingdom, that's a problem. Uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, it speaks of wickedness being prevalent since the disciples need to function as salt and light. That doesn't apply to the millennial kingdom. Uh, also, the, one of the major co- uh, contradictions is that within the Sermon on the Mount, the disciples are to pray for the coming of the kingdom. If this is supposed to be the constitution within the kingdom, why would you be praying for the kingdom to come? It's already there. And then lastly, they're warned against false prophets. Again, that doesn't fit the scenario of the kingdom. Uh, Lewis Sperry Chafer said that the conclusion growing out of this analysis, uh, that is his analysis, is that it is the direct and official pronouncement of the king himself of the manner of life which will be the ground of admission into the kingdom of heaven and the manner of life to be lived. That seems to conflict with everything he taught about grace and getting into heaven, that you have to live this way in order to get into the kingdom. That's what Schaefer said. Just pointing out there's been a lot of confusion, a lot of different views on this particular passage. Um, Then there is the last view, the interim view. I think this is the best view. It's based on a literal grammatical historical interpretation. 
It fits the context of the time frame when the kingdom was still being offered to Israel by Jesus and his disciples. It fits a time when the kingdom is still anticipated. Uh, if you do this, you will, in the future, future tense, inherit the kingdom. So the kingdom is still viewed as future, and the, the application of the message is in a time frame prior to the arrival of the kingdom so that it speaks of future rewards. The disciples are to pray for the coming of the kingdom, thy kingdom come. It speaks about the king carrying out a judgment when the kingdom is is established, and it recognizes that they will be living in a time of hostility and persecution before the arrival of the kingdom. So this fits the context, and in the interim view, what Jesus is doing is he's teaching his disciples about the kind of righteousness that should characterize the spiritual life of a disciple or follower of Christ until the kingdom comes. What we find, and even in many of the hard sayings in the Sermon on the Mount, is that they reflect both principles articulated in the Mosaic Law of the Old Testament, but they are restated in the New Testament epistles so that what what is being presented in the Sermon on the Mount, as we'll see as we go through it in detail, is a standard of life that should characterize anyone who is truly serious about pursuing spiritual maturity to prepare themselves for their future role, their future destiny within the kingdom of God. I just want to give you a little bit of an overview in terms of the organization here. The setting is described in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. It's near the Sea of Galilee. It is up on one of the hillsides near the Sea of Galilee. Uh, comparing it with Luke, they, Jesus takes them to a somewhat flat place where he can teach them, but he is he sits down like a rabbi. We'll see that in verse 1. The, the, uh, when a rabbi taught at that time, he would sit down. When he read scripture, he would stand up, but when he sought to explain it, he would sit down. So Jesus takes the role of a a rabbi with his disciples, and he is teaching his disciples. Now, the crowds are going to find him, and they're going to gather around and listen. But what we'll see is Jesus is just teaching uh, his disciples. That's the setting. The second major division is from 5.3 to 5.16, which includes the section known as the Beatitudes, which emphasize uh, the uh, character qualities. These all come out of the Old Testament. What we'll see that's fascinating is they all relate to the kingdom, even in their Old Testament context. So what Jesus is clearly doing is giving a divine viewpoint interpretation of Old Testament teaching related to the kind of righteousness needed to fully experience life in the kingdom, not getting there, but fully experiencing all of the blessing, everything that is that is there. That's 5.3 to 5.16. The major section of the sermon is from 5.17 through 7.12, where Jesus explains and describes ex- the kind of righteousness, the experiential righteousness, not imputed righteousness, but the kind of righteous living that it should characterize those who will inherit the kingdom. We're in a training ground now, and we're training and preparing for the kingdom. 
that principle would apply to both the Jew under the Mosaic law in that dispensation at the time of Christ, as well as to church-age believers. We may have different roles and responsibilities in the kingdom, but these principles would apply equally to both. And then the fourth major division is in 713 to 727, where uh, Jesus gives several warnings to his disciples. What we see as we get into this is that the righteousness that is being defined is something quite different from the righteousness that is being taught by the scribes and the Pharisees. The righteousness, righteous living that was described by the scribes and the Pharisees was one of, uh, of intense morality, but it was an external morality. There didn't have to be any kind of an internal change or transformation, so it was an externalism. And it focuses just on going through certain rote uh, rituals. And if you did those, you were okay. But Jesus challenges this later on in Matthew uh, 25 and 26, where he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. In other words, there's no internal spiritual shift There's no real devotion to God. It's just a matter of externalism, and he condemns that. So the kind of righteousness Jesus is then talking about is going to be the kind of righteousness that is what we would call experiential righteousness. Some call it genuine righteousness. Some have called it other terms. But it's the the application of the word in our lives and the righteous living that results from that. Now, one of the things that we have to understand as we go through this section is it's going to use the word saved. It's going to talk about entering life, entering the kingdom, inheriting the kingdom. And we have to understand, as we've seen in our previous studies in Romans, as well as our studies in Hebrews, that these terms have different meanings in different from different authors. We saw in Romans that the word saved never relates to getting into heaven. It always describes something in terms of either the spiritual life or it includes the entire plan of God for salvation. God's plan has three stages, and the word saved is used in relation to each of them. So we always have to look at the context to see what we're saved from. In phase one, we talk about being saved from the penalty of sin, which is otherwise known as justification or regeneration. In phase two, uh, we talk about the spiritual life or sanctification, and and in phase three, glorification. In phase one, we're saved from the penalty of sin, and we find phrases like, you were saved. But phase two, we're saved from the power of sin, and talks about we are being saved, And then in the future, we will be saved from the presence of sin. You will be saved. So in Matthew, like in Romans, the word group saved always refers to the second phase. It always relates to spiritual life. That's important so we understand what's being said. Matthew and the Gospels and what Jesus teaches about discipleship isn't a conflict with what Paul teaches about salvation being a free gift. So Jesus goes up on the mountain with his disciples. Luke, as we read this morning, Jesus took his disciples aside. He looked at them. So the emphasis in the writers is Jesus is giving instruction to his disciples. 
what we see is he addresses the disciples, not the listening crowd. He's not talking to unbelievers. He's talking to believers. He never addresses the issue of how to get saved. In other words, how to get into heaven when you die. That's never mentioned in the Sermon on the Mount. He never talks about what is required to get into heaven. They're already saved. He is talking to them about how to be saved in the sense of being saved from the power of sin in their life. Third point, Jesus tells them, that they will be rewarded in heaven and that they are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. This is a present reality. That's not true if he's talking to unbelievers. But his assumption is those that he is talking to are going to be rewarded in heaven. They are already salt of the earth and the light of the world. Fourth, he instructs them on prayer, rewards, giving, and fasting. All of these are spiritual life issues. They are not how to get to heaven issues. We don't get to heaven by works. We don't get to heaven on the basis of prayer, rewards, giving, or fasting. We get to heaven simply by faith alone in Christ alone. And then those to whom he is speaking, the disciples, ask him to be taught to pray. They ask him several questions, all of which indicate that they are already, already believers so that he is teaching them how they are to live as a believer so that they will be uh, truly rewarded. So we see that he is speaking to believers. Now, let's go to what I believe is the central passage for understanding Matthew, uh, Matthew 5 through 7. Let's look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. 20 is a verse I have frequently quoted at times, And I'm sorry to say I have misinterpreted this. Uh, This is not ever to be used to teach imputed righteousness. It's not talking about that. Uh, I have thought of it that way at times. That's really bad methodology. It's taking it out of context. We have to understand the context. He's talking to believers about how they are to live, not how they are to get life. So it's not talking about imputed righteousness. Matthew 5.19 sets up the context, and it appears there's a contradiction here. Matthew 5.19, Jesus says, Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments, this is talking about somebody who, uh, who misinterprets or misapplies even the smallest commandment in the Mosaic Law, and he not only breaks it, but he teaches others to do so as well. So if he's teaching them the wrong interpretation and application of the most seemingly inconsequential law, that implies that he's violating the others as well. And so Jesus goes on to say, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But guess where he is? He's in the kingdom of heaven. Okay? That's really important. You would think that somebody who is mishandling scripture and teaching uh, and teaching false things and teaching people even to violate and break the scripture that they wouldn't get to heaven but he's saying no and that would describe the pharisees in a general sense we're not talking about individual salvation here but he says no even if you're teaching wrong and misapplication and guiding people wrong they're still if they're saved they're still the least in the kingdom of heaven But whoever does and teaches them, in other words, whoever is applying the word correctly 
and teaching those principles, he shall be called great in the kingdom of God. This has to do with rewards and blessings versus the loss of rewards. It's not talking about getting into heaven. Always remember this. Salvation is free. Rewards are based on works. Salvation is free based on the work of Christ on the cross. Rewards are based on our obedience under the filling of the Spirit and walking by the Spirit in terms of our our spiritual life. Then the next verse seems to contradict the first, but we have to remember we may not be reading it in context, and that is what often happens. In verse 20, Jesus says, For I say to you... Now, that phrase, for I say to you, indicates that, that there's a connection to the previous statement, and he's giving additional explanation or information related to the previous statement. He says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, or surpasses the righteousness of the scribes or Pharisees. Now, what kind of righteousness do they have? It's a superficial righteousness that just is external, not internal. So it's totally inadequate. We'll talk about this more when we get there. I'm giving you the overview now. But in the Old Testament, when Jesus, I mean, excuse me, when Moses is giving instruction to the Jews, he's giving them all of the commandments, but he's assuming they're saved. That is, when they die, they're going to go to heaven. But the commandments of the law are designed to teach them how to live righteously as those in covenant relationship with God so that they will experience the blessings that God has for them. We're all familiar with the fact that God said, if you do these things, I will bless you, and you have all these blessings he enumerates. But if you don't do these things, I will curse you even to the point of removing you from the land. So so that's the contrast. It's not getting into the land, but it is staying in the land and being blessed by God. By analogy, that means that what we're finding here is Jesus is talking not about how to get into heaven for eternity, but so that when you're there, you will have a rich, full experience in heaven, ruling and reigning with Christ in the kingdom, and then on into eternity. And so he ends this statement by saying that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the phrase enter the kingdom of heaven sometimes means getting eternal life and just simply phase one salvation. But in other places like this one, it's talking about phase two salvation because entering into the kingdom isn't based on works. Otherwise, we have a real problem. But the scriptures in the gospels talk about what is required of a disciple, and that has to do with works. I pointed these verses out last time. In Mark eight thirty four and 35, Jesus called the people to himself with his disciples also and said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This is, some, some people take this as a requirement for salvation, but that would make salvation according to works. This is talking about the requirement to be a disciple, which is a believer who has decided to go on to spiritual maturity. He goes on to say, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. 
See, he's talking about saving the life, but that's not talking about getting into heaven. That's phase two. That's experiencing the fullness of life, being saved from the uh, power of sin. In Luke 14, 26, Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. See, he's not saying you have to do these things in order to have eternal life and get into heaven when you die. He's saying this is part of the requirement for being a mature believer and pursuing this being a true genuine disciple so that in the next life when we are when we come back with our, we will be rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ and be prepared to rule and reign with Christ that's works in these passages works what we do is related to our future uh, role in the kingdom but getting there at the time of death is not based on works. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says that it's not of works, lest any man should boast. And Titus 3, 5 says it's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Salvation, in terms of getting into heaven when we die, is based on faith alone in Christ alone. But what we, the privileges we have in the in the kingdom. The role and responsibility we have in the kingdom is determined by what we do with what God gives us in this life because we have to grow to spiritual maturity so we have the capacity, the understanding, the framework to be able to rule and reign with him in the kingdom. This is what Peter talks about in in 2 Peter 1, verse 10 and 11. Therefore, brethren, he talks about them as believers. Be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. See, they're already saved. That's clear from the context. But make this sure. That is, make it evident. He's not talking about confirming it. He's talking about make it evident. For if you do these things, you will not stumble. He's not talking about losing your salvation. He's talking about failing in your spiritual life. And he goes on to say, for so, that is, if you do these things and pursue spiritual maturity... An entrance will be supplied to you abundantly. You're not just going to get into heaven. You're not just going to walk through the pearly gates, as they say, but you're going to have fanfare. There's going to be an abundant entrance into uh, the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So what Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount is not how to get into heaven when you die, but it's a challenge to each of us as believers today to pursue discipleship, to pursue spiritual maturity, because as we grow to spiritual maturity, what we are securing for ourselves is our our rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. We're going to experience a richer, fuller life today than we could ever imagine, and that sets the stage for us individually for a richer, fuller experience in the kingdom of God and heaven after we die. And so the challenge that we'll see before us every in every lesson as we go through not just this but Matthew is a challenge to the call of discipleship. Are we will, willing to be a learner of Jesus? And that means not only studying the word and learning what he says for us, but it means application, using it on a day-to-day basis where our lives are transformed 
more and more into the uh, character of Jesus Christ, manifesting the fruit of the Spirit and demonstrating his grace in our lives with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for this opportunity to get this overview of this fantastic passage of Scripture, a passage that's hard for us to deal with, hard for us at times to uh, fully absorb because it it presents such a high level of challenge to us in terms of our day-to-day spiritual life and day-to-day spiritual walk. But we, we know that we cannot attain this on our own, but only through God the Holy Spirit and a day-to-day walk by the Spirit, staying in fellowship, abiding in Christ, walking in the light, all of these terms that we see again and again in Scripture. Now, Father, we pray for those that might be here this morning that are not really sure of their eternal destiny at the time of death, not really sure what will happen, that they might have certainty and conviction at this point that salvation, that is your eternal destiny in heaven, is determined not by what you do, not by what you haven't done. It is determined by your faith in Jesus Christ. Scripture is very clear. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done. It's not of works lest any man should boast. But it is simply on the basis of the work of Christ on the cross. This is why Scripture says that all that is required is that we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and we will be saved. At the instant that you believe in Jesus, you're regenerate, you're justified, you have eternal life, your destiny is heaven, you can never lose it, it can never be taken from you. But the issue then becomes, what am I going to do with my new life in Christ? Am I going to pursue excellence in my spiritual life, or am I just going to be satisfied to barely get into heaven? That's the challenge before each of us every day. Father, we pray that we might respond the right way, that you give us the strength to pursue excellence in our spiritual life, that we might glorify you in everything that we say and do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.